Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and today I'm joined by, as always, Roz Manin. And this month we have Dr. Yannick Bababekov from Colorado, who is our editorial fellowship intern, who is going to be going over a couple papers this month. This is uh, for the May podcast. We actually have four papers, three on kidney transplant and one on viral infections. And I'm going to go over the table of contents um, and then we'll get started. So the first paper is by Durand et al. It's a prospective multicenter pilot study of HIV positive deceased donor to HIV positive recipient kidney transplantation. Hope in Action uh, with a paired editorial, and uh, Yannick will do that one. Then we will move on to a study by Munch et al. entitled, Is the Risk of Cardiovascular Disease Increased in Living Kidney Donors? A Danish population-based cohort study with another paired editorial. Then Roz will discuss Helgeson, Helgeson's paper, I-IFTA and chronic active T-cell mediated rejection, a tale of two decaf cohorts with an editorial that's also paired there. And then I'm going to finish with um, Mambelli, Mambelli et al.'s group, uh, Swede, uh, Swiss group entitled uh, Burden, Epidemiology and Outcomes of Microbiologically Confirmed Respiratory Viral Infections in Solid Organ Transplant Recipients, a nationwide multi-season prospective cohort study. So just before we get started, and I'll mention this at the end, if if you all uh, have been enjoying AJT highlights, and uh, we've been doing this now for over a, about a year, and what we're really interested in hearing is your feedback on how the podcast is going. We have created with uh, the help from AJT a survey that is going out to uh, is going out online. If you have a few minutes. It's a pretty short survey, but it's basically asking, what do you like about the podcast? What would you like to see more of? It'd be really helpful to guide us moving towards the future. The link for that is bit.ly slash AJT pod. bit.ly slash AJT pod. It's a quick survey. It'd be great to get your feedback so we can make sure we're um, doing the best podcast possible. So, Yannick, why don't you uh, get started with the Duran paper? Okay. Hello, everybody, and, and thanks as always to Dr. Levitsky and Dr. Manon for organizing. I think just a, a superb podcast. Um, AGT Highlights has been really valuable for me as a trainee, keeping on top of literature each month and uh, really learning about critical information from the leaders in the field. So, thank you. Uh, the first study I will discuss is the Hope in Action study, um, as mentioned by Dr. Uh, Duran et al. So, thanks to the HIV Organ and Policy Equity Act, uh, we've been able to transplant grafts from HIV-positive donors into HIV-positive recipients based on legislation. And in this paper, the Hope in Action investigators aim to explore the safety of and the risk attributable to an HIV-positive donor. They report on a prospective multicenter study in kidney transplantation, uh, comparing pairs of uh, HIV-positive donors and positive recipients to HIV-negative donors and uh recipients. I, I guess to point out a few things first, just at the stage of the work, um, in the United States, we've made some tremendous progress in caring for patients with end-stage renal disease with HIV, but it's important to note that HIV-positive donor to HIV recipient transplant was first pioneered in South Africa at the Groot Scher Hospital uh, in Cape Town in 2008, seven years before we passed legislation in the form of the HOPE Act in 2015. 
And uh, despite encouraging outcomes in this endeavor, a direct assessment of outcomes from donor positive to recipient positive compared to donor negative recipient positive pairs has yet to be done um, until now. So this was a study that enrolled patients from 14 centers, um, all HIV positive adults. They had a CD4 count greater than 200 within the last four months and were on antiretroviral therapy with an HIV RNA less than 50. Patients were excluded if they had active opportunistic infections, history of PML, or CNS lymphoma. And the centers followed standard allocation protocols, uh, including receiving offers for HIV-positive donors for the HOPE Act. Um, immune suppression varied by centers, of course, but uh, most recipients received induction therapy with either a lymphocyte-depleting uh, agent or IL-2 receptor blockade. And data was collected from March 2016 to July 2019, during which time there were 75 HIV-positive patients that underwent kidney transplant in the study. 25 were donor-positive, recipient-positive pairs, and 50 were donor-negative, recipient-positive pairs. Overall, about a quarter, 23% of the recipients were co-infected with hep C. Uh, the donors themselves were of relatively good quality, on average, about 17 hours of cold ischemia time and had a KDPI of about 30. And the, the results are pretty exciting. Patient survival for the donor positive and donor negative groups was 100% at 1.4 and 1.8 years of follow-up. There was no difference in one-year graft survival, 91% versus 92%. However, delayed graft function or DGF occurred in 42% of cases of the donor negative recipients compared to 12% in the donor positive recipients with differences in the DGF risk factors, excuse me, without any differences in DGF risk factors between the groups. And that was not a statistically significant finding. There was no difference in the risk of graft failure. One-year rejection was uh, trended to be higher in the donor-positive recipients, 50% versus 29%, but not a significant finding. And uh, it should be noted that about 21% of recipients receiving a lymphocyte-depleting agent for induction had rejection compared to 44% of patients receiving basiliximab. Uh, moreover, to highlight, one-year graft function was not different between the groups, and there's no difference with respect to renal function trajectory. Regarding safety, there aren't any differences in safety measures, proportion of opportunistic infections, or breakthrough uh, viremia. All encouraging results. Uh, in summary, this is a great report that demonstrates the excellent patient graft survival in HIV positive donor and recipient uh, kidney transplantation uh, using US data. The data does parallel the success from South Africa. And importantly, the paper contributes a donor negative recipient positive comparison group to the literature. Uh, a few uh, points uh, to, to uh, highlight in the discussion. In the United States, the prevalence of antiretroviral therapy um, resistance is higher compared to South Africa. And moreover, most HIV positive donors in South Africa were antiretroviral therapy naive, but 70% of the HIV donors experienced antiretrovirals in this study. So somebody could raise a concern for the potential of HIV superinfection in any recipients. But this study did not report any breakthrough HIV issues attributable to the HIV positive donor. Another interesting finding is that rejection was higher but not statistically different in the donor positive group. Again, it was 50% versus 29% uh, during the first year. These data somewhat parallel other studies that demonstrated rejection to be about two times higher in the HIV positive transplant recipients. The reason for high rates of rejection is unclear. Of course, it's likely multifactorial in the setting of a drug-drug interaction, potentially co-infection with hep C, 
or immune dysregulation from the HIV itself. And for example, this could be because of an imbalance of memory T cells um, to naive T cells. Something else to discuss is that the DGF rate was higher in the donor negative group. This is potentially explained by the use of uh, hep C viremic donors to viremic recipients, or maybe HIV positive recipients um, have biology that is protective of any ischemia reperfusion energy that could be attributed to the DCD donor. Um, again, a mechanism is not entirely clear. Nevertheless, irrespective of the trend towards rejection and uh, DGF, long-term graph function was excellent. And uh, as such, we can conclude that the donor-positive to recipient-positive HIV transplant should continue to be championed in the setting of the organ shortage, and that the transplant community should continue to expand the donor pool, and importantly, continue to improve access to transplant for patients with HIV. So it's a great paper. Yeah, really um, just kind of a seminal piece of work. I'm wondering your thoughts on, or they mentioned next steps. I mean, uh, HIV positive into negative, like we do with hep C. Do you think that's going to be in our future um, with, or is that too, too far, too, too extreme? Oh, that's certainly something to discuss. It's to prevent, great that. It's preventive, like, you know, prevent antiviral, prevent transmission, just like hep C. Yeah, certainly something to discuss for the future. Certainly having HIV is now more of a, a chronic disease than immediately contributing to death. You know, some of the patients transplanted here did have end-stage renal disease from HIV, so I think it would come down to patient selection, but certainly something to discuss, um, as well as transplanting other organs infected with HIV into recipients with HIV. I mean, one of the issues that I don't think we really highlighted in this paper is that, you know, with the expectation of the HOPE Act, there would be all these kidneys circulating around, sort of like the hep C kidneys, where there's, there are a dime a dozen, but it was disappointing to see the amount of work to identify these kidneys. And I, I, they allude to it a little in the paper because they had quite a number that where they ended up screening ultimately as negative for HIV. So one is sort of communicating to donor hospitals that HIV doesn't mean, and someone dies and they have in their HIV positive that they're not usable. And I think that's a public education message that has to go on. I'm not sure about that I'm excited about a positive into a negative until there's other studies within the HOPE Act, uh, within HOPE kidneys that are being used just to sort of look at reservoir of disease. And I think that's something that would be a nice safety message in individuals just to make sure that, mm -hmm. you know, some of the things like rejection rate are gone. I don't get the DGF piece. I was really surprised about it being so much lower. Not sure I believe any of those theories, but it's interesting. Great work. Good job. Great. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Yannick, you want to move on to um, number two for you? So another um, interesting paper to discuss, is the risk of cardiovascular disease increased in living kidney donors? This is a study from a Danish uh, population by Munch et al. So I've always been impressed with, with studies from, from the European countries that are able to combine so many data sets. And, and here's another fantastic example. So this was from a, a Danish nationwide cohort uh, from 1996 to 2018 and investigated if the risk of cardiovascular disease proxied by its equivalence is increased in live kidney donors. Following the premise that um, GFR is reduced and urinary protein excretion is increased uh, after donor nephrectomy, both of these are associated with cardiovascular disease. The study assessed if decreased renal function in the donor may increase the risk of cardiovascular disease in an otherwise healthy living kidney donor. So specifically, the aims were to determine the risk of cardiovascular disease equivalents, such as hypertension, AFib, ischemic stroke, ischemic heart disease, 
and also the risk of death after donorectomy. There were two comparison cohorts, age and sex matched individuals of the general population, and also a second group, age and sex matched blood donors. So other people that have donated something as a control. The data was obtained from the uh, Danish National Patient Registry, the Danish Civil Registry, and the Danish National Prescription Registry, and also the Scandinavian Donations and Transfusion uh, Database. All of these were linked um, impressively, um, but I think more of a, a great systematic setup um, in the country um, in that all Danish residents are assigned a unique personal identifier. So that really makes it easy to link across all the registries. I'm assuming it's easy. At least the authors made it look easy. Donors were excluded if they had a coded diagnosis that suggested a history of coronary vascular disease, or if they had a history of liver disease, diabetes, COPD, and autoimmune uh, diagnosis or malignancy. And the donors were matched to 10 age and sex matched people from each the general population and the blood donor uh, populations. They define hypertension, I'm assuming using the, the pharmacy registry. So this is if an individual had a minimum of two different antihypertensives um, at or on after donation. The other cardiovascular outcomes were assessed by diagnosis codes. Each matching pair was followed from an index date, and this was the date of a nephrectomy for the donor. Um, and they were followed until the first diagnosis of a cardiovascular equivalent event, um, or if somebody died or emigrated uh, or until follow-up ended. So in total, there were 1,103 donors compared to just over 11,000 uh, people in the general population. That was one comparison. And the other was just over 1,000 donors compared to 260,000 blood donors uh, getting to the results. So compared to the general population for kidney donors, the risk of hypertension was about the same, about 15%. The risk of AFib was decreased 4.5 versus 7.8%. The composite risk of MI stroke or death was decreased 4.5% versus 7.8%. And the risk of all-cause mortality was also decreased for kidney donors 2.4% versus 5.4%. Compared to blood donors, Kidney donors had 1.4 times increased risk of developing hypertension, and there's no difference in any of the other measures. The authors reasoned the excellent outcomes for kidney donors were secondary to their being in excellent health in the setting of you know, going through a pretty rigorous medical clearance process in order to donate a kidney. Moreover, the general population likely had minimally worse outcomes as the comparison group had more comorbidities at baseline gauging by the pharmacy claims. So, for example, people in the general population had more lipid-lowering agents prescribed, as well as antidepressants. This study did not confirm results uh, of other studies that found an increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease in kidney donors. Nevertheless, there was an increased risk of hypertension. Mechanistically, the reduced renal function after donor nephrectomy can likely be explained uh, secondary to an imbalance in the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. This contributes to hypertension, presumably from salt retention and hypervolemia. The authors may not have found an increased risk for cardiovascular disease, maybe for two reasons. The first is that the follow-up period was just not long enough. There is only a 10-year cumulative risk assessment calculated here with a median follow-up of 10, uh, eight years. So, for example, one paper that found otherwise found that all-cause mortality to be higher in the kidney donor, and they detected a signal at 15 years. And again, median follow-up here was only eight years. A second reason, donors had uh, routine nephrology follow-up after their uh, donation. And this includes, of course, frequent medical check-ins. And this potentially could have led to a bias 
you know, a greater likelihood of initiating an antihypertensive and any aggressive medical management could have reduced any downstream adverse event related to cardiovascular disease. There were several limitations. Uh, the authors had a very sincere discussion of, of many of them. Um, something to highlight here is that the number of donors over this study, again, 23 years, was limited to just a thousand um, per group. And so any small difference may not have been detected. Also, given that all the donors with morbidities were excluded, the results are not entirely generalizable to different population groups. I myself did not appreciate any information regarding kind of detailed demographics of the population, you know, race, socioeconomic status, um, things that we know matter in, in healthcare outcomes. Um, but I, I would assume that there was a relatively homogenous, healthy Danish population. We can't really say too much about the impact of race or, or socioeconomic status and outcomes. Moreover, as with any other large database, the fine granular details are missed and they're hard to decipher. Um, but overall, in this paper, the authors have a really nice discussion of, of limitations. But I, I hope it doesn't detract from, from their overall findings. And the impressive fact that they were able to leverage a linkage across so many registries. So to summarize, the analysis did identify a slight increase in the risk of initiating treatment for hypertension in live kidney donors. The results that they found might be from surveillance bias or some other undetected confounder. But nevertheless, kidney donation continues to be safe um, or appears to be safe. And there's no association between donating a kidney um, and post-donation cardiovascular disease or death. The results suggest that the transplant community should continue to be diligent about routine follow-up care for donors. Um, and I think uh, we can continue to champion living kidney donation uh, in the setting of the organ shortage. So thanks again for the opportunity to discuss this paper. So great uh, summary of, of quite a bit of data. And again, I agree, you know, seeing the linkage of, of three different data sets, including the notion of blood donors, was really uh, unique. And I do think it's important to sort of frame this in the context of a closed healthcare system, so to speak, where there is tax-supported healthcare. So maybe their outcomes long-term are a little bit better, that the follow-up is a little bit shorter here than in some of the other cohort studies, say, that have been published. And uh, I think, too, that the that this is a European, Ameri you know, European Caucasian uh, cohort. And so we need to, you know, we don't want to talk about, um, you know, I don't want to say, okay, well, you know, African-Americans are going to do, you know, you got to pay more attention to them, but I think you have to just have your eyes wide open when you're working with a family that's, that's, or, or an individual who's African-American where there may be a propensity to some of these um, comorbidities long-term that uh, and their ability to access, not to discriminate, but to be helpful and supportive to say, hey, you know, this is what we know. So this literature is great, but if you get overweight or you become diabetic, you know, it's the, all bets are off and, and your risk may be higher. Yes, of course. Is that is have has a similar been study been done in a North American population that have found similar issues with blood pressure and, or anything with cardiovascular in donors or has it is it just i mean they have such an amazing cohort here in this in uh this country you know it's they're, they're tracking everything it might be hard to do in the u.s i mean part of the the issue so the relive study which was looking at a cross-section of you know longer term live donors and lung transplant donors was probably one of the few studies that I can think of where they actually tried to look at these kind of comorbidities 
um, because, you know, like these like the, you know, people criticize Minnesota data because it's the people that come back or the people that they can follow and that there's a lot of bias in there. And so there is a, a finite risk of death. There is a finite risk of developing hypertension and, and other comorbidities that are small but present. And again, people complain, well, you know, was Relive really, you know, representative of the U.S.? Well, it was, I want to say, uh, was Mayo, Minnesota, maybe, and uh, and uh, Alabama. So there was a smattering of African-American donors. But when you look again at trying to make those predictions of, to a population, it's difficult because even like last year, if you look at UNO's data, African-American donors were a fraction of the live donor population overall. We have to keep Yannick busy because if he doesn't move, his lights go out on his... Uh, <laughs> That's a little levity for the podcast because we're trying to make people realize we're having a good time doing this. So, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's like, again, like we said previously, it's, uh, you know, caution, but but don't but feel some reassurance that we have some literature to say that it's it, this is, I think, an important case to show you that it's just not the kidney function. Like, yes, there is an association of, of MACE with kidney reduction. We know that in 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 CKD patient populations, but the, but it, it's somewhat reassuring, at least in Caucasians, that if they're followed in a closed health system, they do pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the two studies cited in the discussion of the paper that found increased risks of, of hypertension among kidney donors um, were from Holscher et al. And, and Hagen et al. The odds ratios or the hazard ratio was 1.19 with a confidence interval that almost approaches 1, 1.01 to 1.41. And the second odds ratio is 1.25 with a confidence interval of 1.12 to 1.39. So just a, a, a marginal increase in uh, the risk of hypertension for a kidney donor from, from two other uh, studies. Well, great. Well, thanks, Yanni. That's, that's like really a very helpful paper to add to the pool of understanding risk to donors. Uh, great. Thank you. So I think uh, we'll move right into Roz's uh, next paper, and then we'll finish up with mine. Sure, sure. So it's um, my opportunity to present the IFD and chronic active T cell media rejection, a tale of two decaf cohorts by Helgeson et al. And and I'm actually a co-author, so I'm embarrassed, but I didn't pick this. I had nothing to do with this to the pub, to the public. So this paper is uh, is evaluating the clinical implications of a certain BAMF kidney pathology criteria known as chronic active T-cell media rejection. And to, to frame this, that diagnostic category, when I was training, usually indicated individuals that had vascular injury and longer-term biopsies, meaning arteritis. And so uh, as a historical perspective, that category just sort of sat there. And about the mid to late to mid-2000s, um, that's like almost two decades ago now, Mike Mengel proposed um, as a as a pathologist that you know the notion of BAMF scoring overlooks inflammation and tubulitis in areas of scarring and fibrosis. And I was always trained just don't look at that area because it's not viable tissue and that the, that cellular inflammation is clean up and macrophages what a, what it, what you know yada yada. But Mike actually did an initial study around I think 2007 2008 that showed that if you included all of that excluding subcapsular inflammation that there was a correlation to worse outcome. And then someone named Roz Manin looked at this in a different way, almost concurrently, where we were looking at this decaf cohort that I'll talk about in a minute, where we looked at cross-sectional patients 
that are late post-transplant getting biopsies for graft dysfunction or proteinuria and made an ident identify that inflammation in areas of atrophy, we called it I-ATER, A-T-R, atrophy, or tubulitis, um, but more so inflammation was an independent predictor of death-centered graft failure. And kudos to um, Joe Grandy for doing all the pathology because he was our central pathologist. And so with those kind of cohorts and then a couple of other uh, protocol biopsy cohorts, um, by 2015, uh, it became called I-IFTA or I-IFTA was included in BAF criteria. And in 2017, it was added to the, it, the chronic active T-cell media rejection category became changed and thresholds were sent. It was, it was felt, and there was a lot of debate. Uh, trust me, in, in 2017, there was a lot of debate in, uh, in Barcelona about whether IFTA really was a part and parcel of chronic active TCMR, and there were people for and against it. So to compromise, they set a threshold of this interstitial inflammation in areas of atrophy, IFTA, to greater than or equal to two, so more than 50% that you had to have active tubulitis of at least a moderate level of greater than or equal to two, and that your total I score had to be at least greater than or equal to two. And that was sort of considered the categorization of this chronic active T-cell mediated rejection. And so there still continues to be debate about whether this entity is really a manifestation of T-cell mediated rejection. And as I pointed out, two large cohort studies, one in Australia, one in, in France, had identified an association of T-cell media rejection with these pathological combinations. So to investigate whether there really is an entity and what it's association with previously, uh, Helgeson and all report on the two cohorts of the declining kidney allograft function study. This study included seven transplant centers across the U.S. and also one, a couple in Canada. Patients were either enrolled prospectively after their transplant course, and then their index biopsy was their first medically indicated biopsy. At the time, nobody was doing surveillance. And while we were waiting for this population of this prospective cohort, waiting for events, um, we created a cross-sectional cohort with specific criteria to find people late post-transplant that had graft injury that precipitated a biopsy and to see how they did. And a nice description of that is shown in figure one. This paper then kind of looks at the components of chronic T-cell media rejection and, and, and associates them with clinical demogra with demographics, clinical outcomes, as well as subcomponent scores of the BAMP criteria. And since many of you are not kidney nerds or pathology nerds, I will summarize them briefly and you can look at the paper. So several key findings, we again, as been shown in prior papers, this I-IFTA score, the, the bigger severity of inflammation in area of fibrosis and atrophy, the higher your score, the worse your death sensor graph function is. And that was true both in the prospective cohort and the cross-sectional cohort. Uh, another key finding is that if you looked at the individual components of chronic active T-cell media rejection, specifically the tubulitis threshold of greater than or equal to two and the TI score, the total inflammation greater than or equal to two and compare it to less than two, the driver for higher death sensor graph failure was really, it, it really made no difference what your IF score was. It was really related to both scores together. And when, I, when these subscores were lower, less than two, the level of IFTA did affect survival. So there seemed to be a dissociation of really their relative importance and also the fact that even low levels of inflammation and, and, and uh, total inflammation 
didn't really have a potent effect on survival. But again, it questions whether those thresholds are set. An important finding here is that prior rejection rejection episodes, either T or antibody mediated, were low in these cohorts, that both in the prospective cohort was only about 17% overall and about 27% in the cross-sectional cohort of people that had chronic T-cell mediated rejection based on the current BRAF criteria. And the presence of IFTA at the time of biopsy was associated with rejection, probably about 60% of the cohort at the time of biopsy met criteria. And you would think probably maybe because of the tubulitis score being so high, but about a third of individuals did not have any rejection at all at the time of biopsy. So no association really of frequent rejection or a presence of rejection before the biopsies. And then there was evidence of rejection findings at the time of biopsy. And importantly, when you looked at the two cohorts, the only difference in the kinds of rejections that were seen at the time of biopsy is that there was more ABMR classification than TCMR. And I guess that's not surprising because the prospective cohort mean time post-biopsy was like almost two years. And in the cross-sectional, it was like, I don't know, seven and a half. I, I, I should know this because I've presented some of these data. So these data are important because they negate the prior findings and support for making these thresholds in chronic active T-cell media rejection. And it's brought up by both the authors and the accompanying editorial by the BAMF uh, uh, group, Mark Haas, uh, Alex Lupe, Mike Mengel, and Candice Rufus, and also Martin Nasons, that we probably need to go back and look at those criteria again, that in fact, late IF does actually work frequently associated with AMR. And that is a finding that Phil Halloran documented in one of his po his biopsy transcript studies for the uh, molecular microscope, and that the frequency of T-cell meter ejection beforehand did not um, really determine that. So um, it's not clear that the threshold of IIFT is necessary, that if you have high enough T and TI, then the IIFT is it, the higher, the you know, it doesn't really probably matter. We were always concerned that maybe there wasn't enough scarring to be important. Um, and so I think that the, that the paper is very long and detailed, but I would encourage individuals to do that. And, and some of the suggestions by the BAMF group, which were discussed in the meeting in 2019 in Pittsburgh is maybe we need to talk about activity and chronicity, almost like a lupus biopsy, that maybe we have to reduce the I-IFTA threshold and rate it as a rating, you know, and give a level of chronicity and then talk about activity so that, that we have a better sense of what we're dealing with. And I think, again, you can dis the notion of trying to do these categorizations. The goal of BAMF in support of them was to create precisely defined treatable entities that individuals could turn to, get rid of, cut through the confusion and try to create a, a standardization of care or, or an opportunity for care. Uh, and unfortunately, I think sometimes what happens is there's a lot of association in biopsies and we create causality. We don't have a, a trocar in a patient and we can't go in there every week and um, check their biopsy, although I think some people would like that. Some people like me, like you're in an animal setting, you can just keep biopsying away and that probably is not relevant. Yeah, I was sort of wondering if this paper, you know, it's adding, feels to me like it's adding, adds more complexity, but to the scoring system, but also there's more clarity in what each of them mean too. So 
I was sort of, uh, I was interested to hear what you thought. So I, I think that, again, it, it highlights the notion that putting this inflammation in areas of tubular atrophy and scarring as chronic active T-cell media rejection probably doesn't fit. And in fact, these data in both of these two cohorts, one cross-sectional at the same centers as one is prospective, probably is not good. And it, and it probably, if you want to I, it's probably best not to call these things chronic active T-cell media rejection or you, you know, and, and how to do that in, in the best way possible that makes it digestible to, you know, a treating clinician. And I think we were always worried, well, there's so much scarring. Are they going to get any bang for the buck if you treat a patient that has active inflammation, a lot of scarring and, and inflammation? All I can say is if you do nothing, their death censored graft survival rate is lower than in people that don't have that kind of inflammation. So I don't think this paper was trying to make it more complicated. I think it was trying to make a point that the current schema of cause, calling something chronic active TCMR using these thresholds is, is not completely correct. And I could say wrong for those of you that want me to say, I'm trying to be politically correct You're doing with my colleagues because there's been a lot of work done in this area and it, and it is highly, um, it has been highly debated. Yes, I imagine. Okay, well, let's finish with this um, turning to a, you know, a very different topic, which is uh, respiratory viral infections and in organ transplant. Um, this was a really nice study by Matteo Mambelli and the Swiss transplant cohort study. Uh, essentially, this was an effort to gather together all of the cases of respiratory viral infections in an organ transplant population. And these are inclusive of influenza, RSV, parainfluenza, metanumavirus, coronaviruses, and a bunch of others that most of the data in the past have focused on these infections in lung transplant recipients. And so this group has it, this is a huge database in, in Switzerland of organ transplant patients. And so they wanted to look at not just lung, but also all the non-lung transplant recipients and see what the, the incidence and impact and outcomes of respiratory viral infections were in across the organ transplant groups. So this was a study over um, way before COVID. So none of this included COVID. But there is some relevance. Uh, Yay! <laughs> there is some relevance in terms of what what the data show. And this was done collected from May 2008 till December 2015. And this was a large cohort of uh, almost thirty almost 3,300 patients through multiple centers in Switzerland. And they were able to get clinical laboratory data at transplantation, six and 12 months, and then yearly thereafter. It sort of sounds like SRTR in a way, but obviously very focused on, in this case, uh, infectious disease outcomes. And again, I mean, these were, what they're documenting are microbiologically confirmed infections. So not just reported by the clinicians, these were actually confirmed infections, uh, which, is, which is really important to um, have that documentation when you're looking at the incidence rather than a uh, reported infection by a, a coordinator or a clinician. Out of that 3294 cases, a little bit over half were kidney, about 1,800, 685 liver, uh, 200, about 250 heart, 334 lung, 161 combined, and 39 other uh, allografts. Um, if you look at, there's a bunch of tables that show the differences between the groups and those who had respiratory viral infections and those who didn't. Um, overall, there were um, 
416 recipients out of the 3294 that had a respiratory viral infection, uh, but nearly 700 episodes. So the patients uh, nearly half the time had two episodes of respiratory viral infection. These occurred at a medium 1.3 years after transplantation. The incidence was understandably much higher in lung, 60% in lung and 12% in non-lung. And the most common respiratory viral infection in lung was picornavirus, whereas in non-lung it was influenza. Uh, which was at 7.5%. There were, um, they, they go through a lot of the clinical characteristics. Um, one thing of note is that bacterial co-infections were documented in nearly 8% of the cases. Um, they go through the treatments. Um, most of the treatment was used for influenza, which was um, oseltamivir. And there was some use of ribavirin in, in some of the cases in the lung recipients of, for RSV um, and some of the other infections. Um, there's a nice cumulative incidence graph, graphs of figure one, which show overall the difference between lung and non-lung, which is much higher cumulative incidence. And they go through the different infections of lung and non-lung, which again show um, the differences in the types of infections and when they're developing this over time. Then they go through outcomes, which um, were hospitalizations were actually quite surprisingly high, a, a, a third of patients were hospitalized in a much smaller percentage ICU, about uh, 4% of them were, hospital, were put in the ICU. The overall mortality was not too high. 30-day mortality was 0.18% uh, and case fatality of 0.9%, but this is still a lot higher than um, the general population. When they looked at characteristics associated on a multi multivariable logistic regression analysis, uh, characteristics that were associated with an ICU ad admission were independently were respiratory viral infection acquisition by nosocomial infection, which was a small percentage, bacterial co-infection, and then lower respiratory infection like radiologic infiltrates or predictors of ICU admission. And then finally, kind of the all important thing was how, um, so we've, we've already talked about the kind of hospitalization and morbidity, but uh, mortality in terms of death or graft failure was significantly higher in patients who developed a respiratory viral infection versus no infection. And this was uh, certainly higher, actually, interestingly, in non-lung recipients. Um, and this association was not, was not present in the lung recipients except for uh, lower respiratory tract infections. So the upper respiratory tract infections did not seem to be impactful on the lung recipients, but the lower uh, ones were really the bad actors. So uh, you know, they go through a nice discussion of what they found, the, um, you know, the, the significant mor morbidity, the hospitalization rate, the ICU admissions, the association between respiratory viral infections and graft failure and death. And they make some, they couldn't really link the cause of that uh, directly. They, in, there was an association in the study between acute rejection and death, but they, whether the effect of the respiratory viral infection, whether that's rejection is mediated through that infection and the risk of death, it was not clear. Certainly there's a, a correlation always between infection, rejection, and death, and you don't know which is causing what, um, but they, they couldn't really make that direct link there. That being said, this was you know, the, kind of the largest study to collect prospectively respiratory viral infections in an organ transplant population. Um, the reason I wanted to bring back 
bring up COVID-19 is that there's actually been some some publication and actually I think the New York Times within the last week um, showed this uh, graph of influenza infections um, over COVID-19, which are dramatically down compared to usual years, which makes sense because people are masking and being careful. And so this kind of goes back to you know, what can we do with this data? Influenza was the worst actor in the non-lung group and the correlation there with lower respiratory infection was fairly significant. And so it kind of goes back to early treatment, but also prevention and using prophylactic measures. We probably need to be more careful in our patient population in terms of preventing these infections and using more you know, whenever we're through this COVID uh, pandemic, um, taking some of what we've learned from it may have an impact on non-COVID infections like influenza and some of the other viruses. Uh, we, this may be really important for our organ transplant population. And I think that's kind of what this shows that these infections, while they're rarely cause direct uh, death, they have a lot of uh, morbidity associated with them and, and uh, can lead to all sorts of it's a bad outcome. So yes, this was a Swiss study, but again, I think it probably would find something similar, maybe even worse in North America. Who knows? But certainly a very large study that had was very, I think, very helpful. I was really struck by the uh, the notion that the non lung had a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, so that was helpful. I mean, that's in, in terms of like being more wary about, you know, oh, it's just a little. You know, I'm going to do the flu test because you look kind of crappy. Oh, you just got a little RSD or you have a little, you know, metanumovirus, no biggie. It does make you wonder about the graph failure rates and whether there's a, an association of us monkeying with immunosuppression because you're concerned. Maybe or, yeah, or, or, or you well, know, you're reducing immunos because yeah. you're worried long term and, and that may be an issue. And I agree with you about the prevention aspect because I think everybody that I've talked to can go back and say when they had their last upper respiratory infection and it was probably in March or 2020 or maybe earlier than that. And and again, I think, you know, the masking and the hand washing and the careful keeping your hands away from your face and eyes. I, I can't say yeah. that's happening and out in Nebraska right. now. We've we've got a norovirus outbreak yeah. all across the state, but um but we know what causes that. So and again I think it's important too because a number of these diseases don't have adequate, you know, antiviral therapy necessarily that you yeah. can pull out and, and take. Right, right. Yeah. Well, great. So I uh, thank you, Roz. Thank you, Yannick, for you know, a great discussion today. I wanted just to finish off again. Please fill out the, go online and fill out the survey. It'd be really helpful to us. Bit.ly at AJT pod. And we will see you in June. Thanks, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 